Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Amy Perlman from the University of Iowa talking about medical management of erectile dysfunction. Cool. Thank you all for sharing. We are going to get started. It is the top of the hour. My name is Amy Perlman. I am a urologist and men's health specialist at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. For the next hour or so, we're going to discuss erectile dysfunction, which is one of those sensitive subjects. So I want to make sure we are comfortable. And to start with that, why don't I kind of show you where I'm at right now, and we'll make some introductions, and I'll show you a little bit about where I'm coming from. So I'm in Iowa City, and I have a little backdrop here, and I think it tells you a little bit about me, but we have a woman in the background here. We got a fun dude over here with a baseball cap. This is pretty cool. I got this from, from uh, my grandparents, and I, I figure when people ask me, well, why sexual health? Why men's health? Well, I feel like it must be somewhere sort of in the family based on genetics or whatever that someone in the family was destined to do what I do. And I just happen to be that person. And we're going to take a little tour here. I'm going to bring my computer over. We'll do a little tour. I did clean up for the group. Did some spring cleaning. So this is my, that's how I manage my uh, quality of life and I hop on that Peloton in the morning. And then folks, this is Iowa City. That's a nice view. I don't see a single cornfield in that background. Isn't that wild? I think it's kind of cool. I, uh, I did not grow up in the Midwest and I grew up in Maryland. Did my training kind of all over the place. University of Miami for undergraduate, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston for medical school, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia for residency. And then I topped off my training at Wake Forest Medical Center for urology fellowship in men's health, prosthetics, and, and male genitourinary reconstruction. Then I came to Iowa about two years ago to direct the men's health program. And I am going to put a little bit of a plug in for University of Iowa now, just because I think it's a gem in the Midwest. And I think what this COVID time is going to allow all of us to do is to consider maybe some of those programs that didn't even show up on our radar when we were initially coming up with what that list might look like of where we wanted to do away rotations or interview. And what an incredible time right now to really take a look at all of the programs, see what's going on on Twitter, check out people's websites, you know, tuning into the UCSF, these programs, and seeing what the faculty and residents are really like. I think this uh, is an incredible opportunity for that. And thank you to UCSF for allowing me to present today. The talk is going to be on medications for erectile dysfunction, an easy pill to swallow. Now, several weeks ago, a colleague of mine and actually a mentor, Dr. Caleb Covell from University of Pennsylvania, gave a talk on surgical management or surgical treatment for erectile dysfunction. And you might think looking at the order of the way that these topics were and the way that we kind of signed up for topics that maybe the surgical option should have come after the medical options, but that's the timeline of how it, historically, we treated erectile dysfunction. You know, the surgical options were first, and then when the pills, when Viagra came out, you know, over 20 years ago, those pills, you know, revolutionized the way that we treat erectile dysfunction, but the surgical options actually came first. Now, yeah, I was looking through a lot of the topics and going through some of the PowerPoints and presentations. And actually, when I trained at University of Pennsylvania, I worked with um, Dr. Weiss and Dr. Long, who gave incredible presentations yesterday. And wow, their topics are complex, right? You're talking about complex hypospadias. You're talking about extrophy. And, you know, I'm talking about medications for erectile dysfunction. So, you know, I, I definitely chose the easier topic to talk about. Um, and I do want to simplify this topic. In many ways, it's very complex. 
Um, but I want to simplify it in a way that allows you to have meaningful conversations with patients. And let me explain what that means. We are going to do this in a cocktail napkin version. So if you, if you joined on a little bit early and you had time to grab perhaps a writing utensil and a piece of paper, a cocktail napkin, or a, a marker board, you know, the cocktail napkin version to me means something that you can explain to a patient in the office in 30 seconds, 60 seconds, five minutes, in a way that that patient understands. And not only that that patient understands, but when that patient goes home and his partner says, hey, Bob, what did you talk about with your urologist today? That patient understands in a way that he can then explain to his partner the discussion that occurred in the office. And even more that when that guy Bob is maybe playing golf on a Saturday and Todd and Chuck and Steve are in the foursome and they're and you know they're just kind of you know hitting some hitting on the range or, or um, you know on the putting green and and they say Hey Bob, like what'd you do this week? And Bob can take out a you know a blank scorecard and say, you know what I learned? I learned that erectile dysfunction is really common, especially as men get older. And I learned that there are many ways that we can treat erectile dysfunction. And so my doctor put me on this pill, or we're gonna try this, you know. And um, so my goal is to teach trainees how to have these nuanced and yet simple conversations with patients. What I learned in surgery, in, sorry, what I learned in residency was really how to operate and some of the you know, underlying mechanisms of disease. What I learned in fellowship was how to manage patient expectations and how to, and how to create talk tracks. And it's great when we combine, it's this beautiful thing that occurs when we can have a five minute conversation that brings in the relevant AUA guidelines and the relevant research and our own experience with patients. And then we top it off with the quality of life goals of the patient that's sitting three feet or actually six feet away from us. That's when we really do it right, is when we bring in those four components and we do that in a short period of time. All right, finally, we'll get into the meat of the conversation here. So I have no relevant disclosures. The learning objectives today, we will illustrate normal penile anatomy, normal erectile physiology, describe medical therapies for erectile dysfunction, the mechanisms by which the ED therapies work, and then some practical considerations that I hope will be useful for you when counseling patients. So let's start with the basics, folks. Anatomy. So grab that napkin and draw a circle. We have two erectile bodies, all right? Those fill with blood to get an erection. The third tube in the penis is the urethra, the tube that you urinate out of. And then we have the cavernosal arteries. There's one in each, and that is largely what's responsible for giving blood to the penis to allow for an erection. Now, I brought this pen here, and it might be a little bit difficult to see. Maybe there. Okay. So the tip of the pen is about the size of a cavernosal artery, so it's pretty small, right? The back of the pen is about the size of a coronary artery that gives blood supply to the heart. So just even based on looking at a pen, which Bob can take out a pen while he's practicing his golf game to show to Chuck, you know, it's pretty obvious why erectile dysfunction shows up several years before symptomatic heart disease, right? And that's based on this cavernosal artery diameter. And then we have the dorsal arteries, paired structures that sit on the top of the penis, and those give blood supply to the glands of the penis. Then we have the venous drainage. When we talk, and then we have the nerves that give uh, sensation to the penis. And that, you know, these structures at the top are the dorsal nerve vascular bundle. So important structure. 
Let's talk physiology. And this might be hard to draw out, but we'll see what we can do here. So with stimulation, with arousal, whether it's visual arousal or touching, we get the release of nitric oxide. We get smooth muscle relaxation. You imagine when things relax, more blood can go into the structure. Now, I like to use the sponge as an example. And actually, hold on one second. All right, so this, my friends, is, I don't think I've used this sponge before. And this sponge um, looks like it's been through some stuff, right? Kind of dirty. And you know, I, okay, to be honest with you, I haven't washed my dishes in, uh, since yesterday. So it's kind of dried out a little bit, all right? Um, but really, I think the sponge is a good illustration of the erectile tissue. Now, I don't know that I really appreciated the structure of the erectile tissue until um, I started doing transgender bottom surgery about a year ago. And when you deconstruct the external genitalia before you reconstruct it, wow, does that give you an incredible understanding of penile anatomy. And part of that procedure is actually scraping off the erectile tissue. You literally scrape it off the tunica and the dorsal neurovascular bundle to get rid of that tissue so it doesn't become, you know, um, one for bleeding and so it doesn't become erect, you know, during, uh, after that surgery. But this is the spongy tissue, right? You have all these openings in here. Those are what fill with blood when the erection occurs. And you can imagine, all right, cavernosal artery goes in here, fills with blood, and all of this expands. And then what happens is once that expands, it pushes against the venous drainage, kind of in between here against the tunica albuginea to prevent the blood from leaking out. So we need good blood flow in, we need the penis to expand and cut off the venous drainage. So let's go into this into a little bit more detail to really understand that arousal part and the very important role that nitric oxide plays in this mechanism. With arousal, we get the release of nitric oxide from endothelial cells and nerve terminals. The nitric oxide activates guanylate cyclase to convert GTP to cyclic GMP, which eventually leads to decreased cytosolic calcium, and that results in smooth muscle relaxation, which ultimately ends in an erection. So then the cyclic GMP that ultimately ends in erection, well, that gets broken down into 5-GMP by phosphodiesterase type 5 which brings us to our first treatment option, the PDE5 type inhibitors, or otherwise known as Viagra. When we talk about Viagra and that little blue pill, you know, we think of a candy store with all of these pills that we have to offer. And it's funny because, you know, when I'm in my outpatient clinic, uh, I ran into a pharmacist in the elevator a while back and we were kind of chit-chatting and she said, you know, we always know when Dr. Perlman is in clinic because a lot of guys come down to grab their Viagra prescriptions. In fact, it's kind of funny when I, you know, ask my patients if I'm prescribing them Viagra or Cialis and I'm like, well, how many do you want me to write for? And they're like, well, I don't know. How many can you write for? And I say, well, I can write for a million Viagra or a million Cialis, but if we look at the price at a dollar a pill, a dollar times a million, it's going to be a million dollars. So however much you're willing to pay is however many I'm willing to prescribe. Let's go into the details a little bit about these medications. And these are the four medications that are uh, FDA approved for the treatment of erectile dysfunction. We have Viagra, or sildenafil is the active ingredient, and the two brand names are going to be Viagra and Revatio. We have Tadalafil, brand name Cialis. We have Vardenafil, which uh, brand name are Levitra and Staxin. Then we have Avanafil, the brand name is Stendra. Now, importantly, you know, as we um, get further on, you know, after these medications came out, is luckily we have generic versions. And that's important when we discuss cost, which we will discuss a little bit later in the presentation. But as of now, there are generic options for sildenafil, 
Tadalafil, and Vardenafil. Avanafil does not yet have a generic option. All right. Now, when we talk about the pills, one of the common concerns from patients, <coughs> excuse me, is, well, doc, I don't want to just get an erection. What if I take it and I don't use it? And like, I don't want to just get an erection if I'm in the grocery store. Well, you know, that's not how it works. You have to be stimulated because if we go back to the underlying mechanism of action, it works via the nitric oxide pathway. And in order for that pathway to work, you have to have arousal for the release of nitric oxide. But let's bring in the components of the AUA guidelines. These were updated for erectile dysfunction in 2018. And guideline statement number eight states, men with ED should be informed regarding the treatment option of an FDA-approved phosphodiesterase type um, five inhibitor, including discussion of benefits, risks, and burdens, unless contraindicated. So what is that contraindication? What does that look like? Well, you know, the big one, right? This is the do not miss is going to be someone who is on a nitrate. And that could be one that they carry around in their pocket, like a sublingual uh, nitroglycerin or something like IMDR, something that they take every day. So it's really important, you know, even when you're prescribing something like Viagra, Cialis, et cetera, that you do run through their medication list just to confirm that they're not on a nitrate because patients don't always know that information. Now, I guess, what is the response that you have to a patient or is it a contraindication if let's say our friend Bob, let's say Bob, he, you know, he has a prescription for nitroglycerin and he does carry it around in his pocket. Well, does that mean I can't prescribe Viagra? Well, not necessarily. So I might ask Bob, well, Bob, I understand that you have a prescription for nitroglycerin, but have you ever had to take nitroglycerin for chest pain? Now, if he says yes, then I'm going to ask him some follow-up questions. And I might say, Bob, when was the last time you had to take nitroglycerin for chest pain? And Bob will oftentimes say, well, you know, it was, uh, let's see, I'm 65, you know, uh, let's say it was 20 years ago Yeah, I had to take it or 15 years ago. But then I had a coronary artery um, stent placed and that was five years ago. And doc, I haven't had an issue in the Sorry, that's why we get my erections back. So that's a different story. If Bob is doing well and he has a prescription but he's not regularly using it, I would feel comfortable giving Bob a prescription for Viagra. Sometimes you're just not really sure. Maybe Bob took a nitroglycerin a year ago, and then he was told that he thought they thought his chest pain was musculoskeletal. You know, that I might say, hey, Bob, can you reach out to your cardiologist? And I want to see a note from your cardiologist saying that, hey, we're all on the same page here. We're all fine with you trying something like Viagra. The problem is, you know, if you combine these medications, uh, if someone you know has to take a nitroglycerin and they're on a PD-5 inhibitor, well, that can cause life uh, potentially fatal hypotension, and and so it definitely is important, and it's a do not miss. All right. Now, the next guideline statement, statement number nine, says when men are prescribed an oral PD-5 inhibitor for the treatment of ED, instruction should be provided to maximize benefit and efficacy. Um, well, right, duh, right? I think we all understand this, and yet um, this is so rarely done, okay? And I know this information because I see these guys all of the time. And, um, and if patients don't take these medications correctly, it can affect efficacy. So who is responsible for talking to patients about the appropriate ways to take them? Is it the doctor? Is it the nurse? Is it the pharmacist? Well, I think the problem is we never sit down as a team to say, who is going to have this conversation? I mean, the reality is it's all of our jobs. That is the reality. But I wonder what that conversation would look like or how we could optimize and best streamline care if we actually sat down with our pharmacist sometime and said, hey, Jim, 
what is your role when you fill a prescription for Viagra? What do you tell the patient? What do you think I tell the patient? What should be our shared message? You know, and I, you know, I'm working on that sort of initiative. I wish it happened more often. I think it's an incredible opportunity for us to better engage with our pharmacists who really do play a critical role on our team. So let's talk about what that conversation should look like because it also differs depending on the pill that we're prescribing. We'll start with fatty food. Viagra and Levitra have impaired absorption if taken after a fatty meal. Cialis, Staxin, and Stendra do not. Now the reason, even though Levitra and Staxin are both uh, Vardenafil, Staxin is a sublingual and gets absorbed in the mouth rather than the intestine, which is the reason for the differences. So that you have to tell patients that. Now sometimes, you know, people might not know if their food is fatty or maybe it just gets a little bit too complex. So you can say, look, Viagra and Levitra, you got to take on an empty stomach at least an hour after eating. It doesn't matter with the other ones. Great, that took five seconds for me to verbalize that information. Median Tmax, so the median amount of time that it takes to reach the uh, maximal concentration in the blood. So they're about the same for these medications between Viagra and Levitra and Staxin. So Stendra takes a little bit less time. Cialis takes a little bit more time. So I might say to a patient, I would recommend that you take Viagra, you know, um, about an hour before you're interested in sexual activity. If you're interested in Cialis, it's going to take a little bit more time to take effect. So I would take it at least two hours before. Now, the reason why I'm going to focus much of this conversation on comparing Viagra and Cialis or the generic versions of either is because Viagra and Levitra are very similar. And you'll see that on these various... Um, but Levitra tends to be more expensive. And so if they're otherwise very similar and Levitra is more expensive, well, with my patient population, they want the cheaper option. And I think that's the case with a lot of patients. And then, you know, with Stendra, it's just very expensive and there's no generic. So I rarely use it in my practice. So it's really, you know, mostly my practice comparing Viagra and Cialis. T-half-life, so amount of time it takes to break down half of the amount um, that's in the blood. So all of these are about the same, except Cialis here is going to be the outlier. So the T-half for Cialis is about 17 and a half hours. Duration of action. Again, they're all looking the same between Viagra, Levitra, Stax, and Sendra. They're all about the same six to eight-ish hours. Cialis, again, is the outlier, 24 to 36 hours. Some people call or refer to Cialis as the weekend pill. You might be able to take it on a Friday night. It might still work for you on a Saturday night. QT interval, it's going to be with the Vardenafil medication that we worry about QT interval. So you got to take a uh, look at those other medications that somebody is on. You know, you don't want to put someone on this medication if they have others that could prolong that interval. Otherwise, you can increase their risk for Tursad. So again, that's another reason why I don't routinely use Levitra is I don't want to have to worry about the QT interval. And then other PDE affinities. So, you know, these medications work largely on PDE5 inhibition. PDE5 is present in cavernosal tissue, but there are other PDEs. So Viagra also works on 6, Levitra 6, Staxin on 6, and 6 is present in the retina. And so that's why, you know, some patients will say that they have vision changes associated with their medication. Cialis also has an affinity for PDE11, and that's present actually in a variety of organs, including the testicles, the prostate, and the muscles. The clinical significance of that is unknown, but I, I've had some patients report some muscle aches with Cialis. And then regarding FDA-approved oral dosing, so they're all PRN dosing, so PRN before sexual activity. Again, Cialis 
you know, is that outlier. You can also do daily dosing and that gets into the um, ability for spontaneity and whether or not someone wants to take a daily medication. You know, with all of these, this information, the cocktail napkins, if you give this information, the patients will tell you, they'll understand which medication they want to try. And some people want to take a daily medication. Others have very little, if no interest. And then oral administration. So all of these are going to be pills that one swallows and Staxin is the one that dissolves on the tongue. Side effects. So in general, the side effects of these medications, most commonly headache and flushing, a little bit less commonly is going to be nasal congestion, back pain, myalgias, dyspepsia, diplopia, blurry vision, impaired color vision, and then even less likely is going to be priapism, vision loss, and hearing loss. Now, the way that I bring up priapism is I say, you know, priapism is very unlikely with these medications. We tend to see it when they're taken inappropriately, so perhaps too much of the medication, or when these medications are taken with other things. For example, um, with injection therapy, it can increase the risk. Trazodone can increase the risk. And then, you know, oftentimes when you get a urine drug screen on these priapism patients, you know, um, they deny the cocaine use, but, but sometimes that cocaine finds a way of getting into the urine. And then other practical considerations. So, you know, a lot of our patients, I think of like the ED patient as being uh, the patient, the gift that keeps on giving, mean, meaning it's rare that they just come in with erectile dysfunction. When we ask about their other con urologic concerns or genitourinary concerns, it is rare that they have nothing else going on in their genital or urinary system. So a lot of these guys are also on alpha blockers. Now you might see or you might worry about, you know, putting someone on Viagra if they're on a nightly Flomax. Um, but really, you know, people will tell you what they can tolerate. And, you know, a lot of these patients have already done this stuff before and they're finally making their way to see you. So you'll get a sense of like, you know, does their blood pressure tolerate these medications? But here's what I tell patients. Hey, Bob, you know, I know you take a Flomax every night and you've been stable on that therapy without any major side effects for the last, you know, six months. We're going to introduce Viagra into the equation. I'm going to start you off at maybe a lower dose just to make sure that you tolerate it well, and don't take it maybe within four hours of taking the Tamsulosin, right? So you don't wanna take them um, um, perhaps all, you know, you don't wanna take everything at the same time, but if they're stable on their alpha blocker, it's okay to add in a PD-5 inhibitor. And then vice versa. So if someone's on Viagra or Cialis and you want to start that patient on an alpha blocker, then just make sure that patient is stable on the PD-5 inhibitor and tolerates it well in terms of blood pressure, and such before starting the alpha blocker and then just start the alpha blocker you know for those titratable ones at a low dose and slowly work your way up um, as the patient tolerates you know then the next question is bph and wow cialis plays a big role in my practice when it comes to that that patient coming in with bph symptoms and erectile dysfunction and you know so these guys are coming in they're on an alpha blocker they're on prn viagra well, if you put them on a low-dose daily Cialis, you can potentially take away a medication, and guys love that. And Cialis really does work well for BPH symptoms. Now, renal impairment is another one. So you can put guys with renal impairment on PD-5 inhibitors. That's not a problem. But with Cialis, you do need to look at their creatinine clearance and renally dose it. So, you know, for some of these guys who want to be on the low-dose daily Cialis, if they're a dialysis patient or they have, you know, severely impaired kidney function, they may actually, um, you have to dose it differently and you don't want to put them on actually a daily dose of the medication. And then cost. And, you know, gosh, cost is not something that we frequently talk about in training. And it greatly impacts you know, our practice once we're out in training and seeing patients on a regular basis. And, you know, it even, it does impact our patients when we're in training. It's just because most of our time is spent in the operating room. We don't know, we don't really get the sense of how many calls it generates. 
or what the frustrations are of our patients when they're super excited to try Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, Stendra, they have their script or the electronic script is sent to the pharmacy and Bob shows up to the pharmacy and says, hey, I'm here to pick up my Cialis. And they run it through insurance and it comes back as, you know, hey, all right, you owe $300. Like Bob is not happy in that case, but unless you're seeing Bob in follow-up, or you're picking up the call when Bob calls in, you really, I think, don't have an appreciation for the cost piece. Now, the nice thing about this is there are coupons that can significantly decrease cost. Now, for example, um, GoodRx, and I don't get any kickback from GoodRx, but I'll tell you, I am a big advocate for that service. And um, if you wanna kind of comment in the chat box if you've heard of GoodRx, I'm kind of interested in how many people have and haven't heard of it. But GoodRx is a company that contracts with various big pharmacies, okay? And they contract, and what they do is they find, when you go to GoodRx, and you can even do this on your computer now, go to GoodRx.com, type in Cialis, click, you know, search, and you can type in, click on generic, put in five milligrams or 20 milligrams, tablet, and let's say you click on 30 or 90. Then when you scroll down, it'll show the different local pharmacies and what their prices are. And for Cialis, for I think it's maybe 30 pills, if you take it to like Costco, it is $33 for 30 pills of maximum dose of Cialis. That's about a dollar a pill. That is game changing. So when we go back to those cocktail napkins and we see, wow, Cialis is really an outlier when it comes to how long it works in the body. And wow, I can eat a burger before I take Cialis and it might still work for me. And I can get, you're telling me that I can get that for a dollar a pill? I'm doing Cialis, you know? And, and Cialis used to be cost prohibitive. But if you know about these other ways of getting it cheap for your patients, wow, it really allows us, I think, to offer all of the options to our patients. And then, you know, with B, the BPH patient, the, the low-dose daily Cialis used to be cost prohibitive, and you'd have to fail an alpha blocker and fail finasteride and all these other medications to make the argument to the insurance company. I really think that my patient should be on five milligrams of daily Cialis. You send them to GoodRx and you can get like 30 pills, I think for the five milligram tablets for $16. Wow, that allows me to treat my BPH patient. The important things to tell your patient are with GoodRx is when they go to the pharmacy, they have to bring in a coupon, they can pull it up on their phone, they can bring in a printout, you can send the prescription electronically, and then they have to say to the pharmacist, I want to fill my Cialis today. I don't want you to run it through insurance. I want to pay cash today. Now, the, you know, the pharmacies um, probably be mad at me, but they have no incentive to fill the prescription for $16 or $33, right? They're losing money by not running it through insurance. But the reality is they've already made that contract. So tell your patients to advocate for themselves to bring in the coupon, and they should be able to get that price. Pharmacies that we send our patients to matter. I don't remember hearing about this at all in my training. But if we, if our patients ask us, and they do ask us, well, doc, where should I take this medication? Should I like, should I take it to my local pharmacy, CVS? And what do we say? Oh, you can take it wherever, CVS, Walgreens. And if you look at that GoodRx information, if they take it to Walgreens, for example, for some of these medications, you know, it might be $1,700 out of pocket. So it varies depending on whether or not they're using insurance or not using insurance. But I hope you take out of today's session, if nothing else, it is our job as healthcare providers to advocate for low costs of the medications that we prescribe for our patients. And we can do that by looking into some of these additional coupon codes, medication assistance, calling our pharmacy and saying, hey, what, how can we work together to educate and provide medications for our mutual patient? I will get off my soapbox. So what is this second, the 60 second script look like? And I do wanna keep, you know, I hope people aren't falling asleep, but I do wanna get 
um, a little bit of feedback from the group. I'm going to give you an example of what my 60 second script looks like. Because remember, our attending is waiting outside and they're waiting for us to get the history and come out so we can move along in the day. So they want us to wrap this up as quickly as possible. So here's what my, sexy, my 60 second script might look like. The good news, Bob, is that we have many options to treat your erectile dysfunction. In fact, there are few men in whom we can't restore function. I am so lucky that I get to specialize in this field. Let's start with the pills. We have four main options, Viagra, Levitra, uh, Cialis, and Stendra. Now, Viagra and Levitra are very similar, but Levitra costs more. So I typically use Viagra in my practice. Stendra, there's no generic. It tends to be cost prohibitive for a lot of patients and no major advantage. So again, I don't use that one very often. So the main ones are Viagra and Cialis. So let's talk about those. Viagra, you, your window of opportunity for it to work is about four to six hours. You gotta take it on an empty stomach. It's gonna be your cheapest option. Cialis, wow, some people call it the weekend pill. It can work for up to 36 hours in some patients. You don't need to take it on an empty stomach. Cialis used to be cost prohibitive. If we run it through some coupons, then we can get it to you for almost an equal price, although Viagra is going to be slightly cheaper. What would you like to do today? Okay, the other piece I'll just quickly bring in is the side effect. So with Viagra, you know, these are the common side effects for all these medications. So headache, facial flushing, reflux, uh, muscle pain, vision changes. Now, if you have these side effects with Cialis, because Cialis stays in your body for a longer period of time, well, those side effects may hang around for a longer period of time. All right. I don't know how long that took me, but does anyone else from the group, anyone else want to raise their hand and give me an example of what your 60-second script looks like? Anybody brave? Anybody? Bueller? All right, fine. I'll keep going here. All right. This is a great diagram from Weeders, and this shows the mechanisms for these other medications. So the other target here, and it works differently, is adenylate cyclase. So alprostadil stimulates adenylate cyclase receptor to convert ATP to cyclic GMP, which goes back to this you know, mutual pathway of decreasing intracellular calcium, resulting in relaxation of smooth muscle, which results in an erection. So one of the ways that we can administer alprostadil is in the urethra, and it's called MUSE, or Medicated Urethral System for Erection. This, there's an applicator, a little pellet at the end, you put it in the urethra, you deposit the medication, kind of massage the medication into the penis, um, and our AUA guidelines address MUSE and say that, you know, it should be discussed as part of that informed discussion to consider, you, you know, when using um, uh, urethral alprosidil to do an in-office test, because the side effects include burning, urethral bleeding, priapism, hypotension, headache, and dizziness, and that's the reason why they, you know, request that you bring the patient in for a test dose, because a small, but, you know, some patients do have some issues with hypotension. Other considerations are going to be cost. So cost plays a role. And MUSE is the most, probably the most expensive option there is when it comes to erectile dysfunction. Now, I'm in Iowa, okay, I'm in Iowa City, and I, a lot of my patients really harp on the cost and they want an option that is low in cost. So this just doesn't play a role in my practice for that reason. And also the urethral pain can be quite bothersome. And then in, when we think about the infrastructure, what this office visit looks like, it requires, you know, for the first time an in-office administration. So what does that mean? Well, it means you have to prescribe the medication for the patient. The patient has to get the medication, bring it back into the office so that they can actually test it there. We think about compliance and the patient setting up another visit to, to come back in. You know, some patients just aren't ever, they always forget to bring their medication in, or at least I've found that in my, my practice. So what does a 30-second script look like when we talk about MUSE? 
All right, someone timing. So we have another way to restore your sexual function, and that's a medication that we can put in the urethra. Remember that tube that you urinate out of. Now this medication works via a different mechanism than something like Viagra or Cialis. So if those weren't cut in the mustard, then this may work for you a little bit better. You know, I'd say downsize, it can be quite expensive for some patients and it can cause some urethral burning and pain. All right, let's talk about the next medical option here intracavernosal injection. So I have um, a little bit, I don't actually have the medication here, but on the left side of the screen is EDEX. So there are two FDA approved medications of Alprostadil. Again, it's the same medication we put in the urethra, it's just a different way of giving the medication. And um, the two medications for Alprostadil are gonna be EDEX and Caverject. So, um, you know, patients will get this, that you put the medication in here, go like this. You know, there's actually, for those of you who prescribe this therapy, there's a great, if you go to like the EDEX website, there's a great video that patients can watch, can watch, um, you know, clean alcohol swabs, small tiny needle injected into the side of the penis at 10 or 2 o'clock, a lot of great resources online to educate patients on this technique. Um, but it is a very small needle, and... Um, our AUA guidelines, you know, it's well within our AUA guidelines of offering this therapy, and it should be discussed in any patient coming in with a concern of erectile dysfunction. And again, just like with the MUSE, you know, we do recommend that the patients come in for an in-office injection. The important thing to think about, let me just go back here, when we talk about the in-office injection, is the infrastructure of the office. And what you will realize, you know, if you're currently in training you, when you start out in practice is just because we want to offer a therapy doesn't mean that we can. There's a lot that um, either persuades us or gets in our way of offering therapies. And I would say for the injections, you know, it's been very helpful to have like EDEX, for example, or Caverject in the office. So that if I have a patient who wants to learn how to do the injection, I don't have to send the medication to the pharmacy. They don't have to go to pick it up, schedule another visit to come back. No, I can say, okay, we can do a test injection today. I order it, they bring it up from the pharmacy, and I do it right then and there. And then, you know what, if they get pain because of the medication, or they're just not into it, then in that same visit, you can move on to the next option. And I find that it helps expedite care and streamline care. Let's talk about the other injectables that we can put into the penis. Another one is called papaverin, and this works um, a little bit differently. So it's a nonspecific inhibitor of phosphodiesterases and inhibits types two, three, and four, which ultimately reduces the breakdown of cyclic AMP into 5-AMP, and so you end up getting, you know, increased amounts of cyclic AMP or cyclic AMP that hangs around for a longer period of time and ultimately, you know, increases erection. And then the last injectable is going to be fentolamine. Fentolamine works on a different receptor. It actually inhibits the alpha-1 receptor. And so what this does, so the sympathetic pathway is actually what causes D2-mescence. Fentolamine does not cause an erection or improve an erection in the way that papaverin and alprostadil do. Fentolamine prevents or inhibits D2-mescence. And so fentolamine is not given alone, but only in combination with the other injectables. Side effects. We'll talk about those for alprostadil and papaverin. The big ones for alprostadil are gonna be penile pain and burning, that's the big one. Priapism, hypotension, headache. Papaverin, you're gonna have penile fibrosis, priapism, hypotension, elevated LFTs. Now for patients who have um, you know, issues with venous leak, then the hypotension and elevated LFTs and more of the systemic side effects can be more of an issue in those patients. The ones, the side effects I want to emphasize for alprostadil is going to be the penile pain and burning. That's a real one. I definitely see that, you know, in some of my patients. And so if you're giving alprostadil or edex alone, you, some of these patients might require a hefty dose that they just don't tolerate well. Papaverin, the main one that we have to talk about with patients is penile fibrosis. So for a lot of us who are treating erectile dysfunction, we also see a lot of patients with Peyronie's disease or penile shortening. 
that's all about the penile fibrosis. And so it's our jobs if we're prescribing papaverin, we have to talk about the risk for penile fibrosis because one, over time, it can worsen erectile dysfunction, can cause curvature, can cause shortening of the penis as we've seen. And then we have combination therapy. So these we have to get from compounding pharmacies. And so the question becomes, well, why do we compound these medications? What's the benefit? Well, Bimix typically comprises papaverin and phentolamine. So we get rid of the alprostadil. Why? Because the alprostadil, remember, can cause that penile pain and burning. So if that's a bothersome side effect, we can give our patient Bimix and take out the alprostadil, okay? Trimix is a combination of three papaverin, phentolamine, and alprostadil. And um, so this can be helpful if, you know, let's say you want to do all three, but by giving all three, I can go lower on my alprostadil dose. So let's say my patient required 20 micrograms of, of, of alprostadil. Let's say if I give that patient Trimix, I might be able to lower that dose to, let's say, five or 10, and they might, their, their penile pain and burning might be less. The other thing to think about is when this comes in, you know, the, like the, the vial, it's not mixed. There's like a, a powder or a little pellet here of the medication, and then there's a diluent. So in the office in real time, you kind of push this up here and you're mixing the medication, okay? It doesn't come pre-mixed for Edex or Caverject, which means this can sit at room temperature allows for traveling. Same thing with bimix, papaverin and phentolamine. This can sit at room temperature. It's the mixed alprostadil that has a shelf life. It's not very steady at room temperature, which means trimix needs to be in the refrigerator or freezer because that alprostadil is already mixed. So for it to be able to last for a longer period of time, it's gotta be cold. Um, but that can also be a barrier for some patients is if they're traveling, they really do need to keep the Trimix on ice. Now, you don't have to necessarily choose between the two of these, right? If you get a little creative, you can have your patient You can have your patient do the Edex on a regular basis, or sorry, you can have your patient do Trimix when they're at home and it's convenient, right, where they can easily get it out of the refrigerator. And if they're traveling, all right, well, you can give them some Edex to bring with them while traveling. And then other considerations, cost. So there used to be with Edex, a, um, there was a contract with a specialty pharmacy where I could tell my patients the maximum out-of-pocket cost per dose is $25. And in real time, that fit within my workflow where I could tell the patient what their max out-of-pocket costs would be. But that, co that contract no longer exists. So now it's a little bit of a struggle because I don't really, I'm working on how to counsel my patients on what they can expect, right? You don't want to send a patient to the pharmacy. And this can be expensive. They might be charged $300 for like three vials. And that is going to, you know, it's going to annoy and frustrate patients. The nice thing about some of these compounding medications is they can be cheaper. Now, insurance typically doesn't cover it. But it, when I prescribe Trimix, for example, to local compounding pharmacy, I can say, all right, Bob, I'm going to send this prescription to this local compounding pharmacy. It's $115 per five mil vial. And, um, you know, if you don't live locally, they'll send it. It's an additional $15 for shipping and handling. So at least he has an idea of what that cost would look like and can tell me in real time that fits in the workflow whether or not that works for him. Also, the infrastructure of the first time in-office administration. Do you have the medication available? Some people have a vial of Trimix in the office refrigerator that they use, right? Some people have the patients go to the pharmacy, get the Trimix, bring the Trimix in. Then you've got to figure out with your clinic staff if you allow outside medications into the office to be administered. Injection frequency. So we recommend that patients don't inject, you know, any sooner than, you know, every other day. So if someone wants to be sexually active, you know, seven days a week, well, then they're not going to be able to use the injection seven days a week. Refrigeration, as we discussed with the alprostadil component when it's mixed with in the Trimix. And then finding a compounding pharmacy. You know, for those of you who are going to offer injections, 
Find a compounding pharmacy wherever you end up practicing. They can really be a major player on your team and they allow you to prescribe these medications that for many can be quite cost effective. So my 60 second script when we talk about injections may look something like this. Someone gonna time me? Anybody? Let's see, ready, set, go. Okay, um, another option that we have to, to restore sexual function are gonna be penile injections. Now I know that doesn't sound very sexy and nobody looks forward to injecting the penis, but you know, to be honest with you, I'm quite surprised at how well some patients tolerate this therapy. It's a tiny needle, you put it in the side of the penis. Now the two erectile bodies are connected in the middle by a thin septum. So man, you only have to inject yourself on one side and it takes quicker to take effect compared to the oral pills. So you do it about 10 to 15 minutes before you wanna be sexually active. I don't make anybody go through the injection process. There are some patients that say, yeah, I'm up for it, let's do a test injection. And others that are like, you know what doc, that's just not for me, and that is fine as well. So that, my friends, is the cocktail napkin version of medications to treat erectile dysfunction. I thank you so much for your time to UCSF for allowing me to take up an entire hour of your day today. And I put my social media stuff here on the bottom right. I encourage you to reach out to me through Twitter. You know, a lot of the stuff is nuanced. I love talking with people about specific, you know, questions they have. When do you do this? What dose do you start at? What do you think? What should my script look like to patients? And I'd be happy to work through that with, you know, anybody who is interested. So with that, 51 minutes, all right, pretty good on time. I am happy to take any questions, concerns, or grievances. Let's see. Okay, got some questions here. All right, so first question here. Have you prescribed Viagra as a daily dosing? And if a patient asks about efficacy regarding daily dosing versus PRN, how do we counsel them? Great question. So no, I don't prescribe Viagra as a daily dosing. Now, patients can take Viagra every day you know, if they want to. But again, you know, it only is going to work in the body for sexual activity for about four to six hours. So now that we can get Cialis for a cheap price, it just makes more sense to go the Cialis route. Let's see, do you see any role for testosterone therapy when treating ED? Absolutely. The, the, um, where I bring that into my, my talk tract is something like this. Um, so testosterone replacement therapy is not necessarily a treatment for erectile dysfunction, but as you can imagine, it is quite difficult to get an erection if your testosterone is low. So in men with low testosterone and erectile dysfunction, well, I treat both. So I might start that person on testosterone therapy and something specifically to treat their erections. Now, I do have some patients that you put them on testosterone therapy and they do great. Their erections do improve. I've definitely seen that, okay? Where testosterone also plays a role is, let's say Bob, our guy Bob, he's, he's really taken the brunt of today's conversation, but let's say Bob comes in and says, you know what, doc, Viagra was working for me, you know, five years ago and it just hasn't been doing the job for the last five years. And let's say we check Bob's testosterone level, which in you know the guidelines for testosterone replacement therapy should be checked in our, in our patients who come in with erectile dysfunction. Let's say Bob's testosterone is also low, all right? And I put him on testosterone therapy. I might then make him a better responder to Viagra than when he was off testosterone. So they, they really do come hand in hand. Let's see. Um... Okay, exactly how do you prescribe sildenafil in your practice? Do you do 20 milligram tabs or 25? Do you usually have the patient start at low dose then go up or just have them start at 100? Great question. Revatio is the brand name medication to treat pulmonary hypertension. It's all the same ingredient of sildenafil. There's also a generic for Revatio. The Revatio comes in the 20 milligram tablet. So when I started at Iowa, you know, that I used the 20 milligram because it was the cheapest. It was like, you know, um, like $19 for 30 pills. And then in the office, I would break it down. So I'm like, buddy, I can get you an erection 
five pills of, you know, of Rubatio for, it ended up being like $3 in erection. You break it down and the patients are like, all right, Dr. Perlman, that works for me. So I was using the 20 milligrams, but that's because it was the, I was using the, the generic Rubatio. So when it comes to cost, that's really the only reason why it would matter between 20 and 25. And I'm telling you, you can get Viagra from GoodRx for dirt cheap. So that's what I do. Um, and then do I have a certain low dose? It depends. If they're getting decent erections, but they just need a little bit of help, I might start them on a lower dose. For the most part, I actually have my patients start at the maximum dose and work their way down. And what I find is people get frustrated. And if they take 20 milligrams or 50 milligrams of Viagra and it doesn't work, they get frustrated and they may not take it again. And so I say, start at 100 milligrams, you know, if it works, then you can try taking 50 milligrams and work your way down. So I tend to start at the high and then go down. Now, if they have other concerns, you know, impaired kidney function, their issue, you know, if they're on an alpha blocker, then I might start at a lower dose for that reason. Let's see. I want to ask regarding Cialis 5. When should patients try having sexual intercourse after starting on Cialis 5 milligrams? So great question. You know, the, the low-dose daily Cialis is going to take several days to build up in the system. And this is also what I talked to you about patients is um, I think the five milligrams of daily Cialis is really great for erectile dysfunction um, and BPH, okay? But the levels in the blood when taking the low-dose daily Cialis will never be as high as if you took the high dose on demand. So for some people, that daily five milligrams of Cialis is not going to do the trick when it comes to getting them great erections for sexual health. So what I do is sometimes I'll say, all right, well, why don't you take a little additional Cialis, maybe double up and take 10 milligrams before you wanna have sexual activity to see if that works. And then you just base the dose on what the patient's side effects are, all right? Now, some people will, will ask, well, Doc, can I combine these medications? Yeah, you can combine them. That gets into the art of all of this stuff, you know? So what I'll have some patients do, they'll take the low-dose daily Cialis, but let's say it's not enough. I might have them take a little bit of Viagra on top. So let's say you take five milligrams of Cialis every day. I might say, why don't you try taking 50 milligrams of Viagra about an hour before sexual activity? Um, the nice thing with that, too, is because Cialis takes you know, if you're taking on demand, it takes about two hours to take effect. You add a little bit of Viagra on there. That doesn't quite take as long. So that can be a good combination. You know, some people also do the pills in combination with the injection therapy um, because they're working via different mechanisms there. Now, I don't routinely do that in my practice. I think you have to be a little bit careful and make sure you counsel patients appropriately on the risk for priapism. But you can can get a little bit creative in the appropriate patient that you know is not gonna just go balls to the wall and pound a bunch of, you know, EDEX in the penis and take a whole bunch of Cialis or Viagra. So, it, you know, it takes some patient counseling with those nuances. Any thoughts on Viagra for, for penile rehab post-prostatectomy? Great question. You know, um, I do see, you know, some patients who refer to me who are on Viagra. I think Cialis, just based on the half-life, makes more sense. There's no great data to say that these medications, you know, change outcomes when it comes to penile rehab. But, you know, some patients just want to feel like they're doing something, right? So for post-penile rehab, it just makes more sense, I think, to put someone on Cialis versus Viagra just based on the amount of time that that medication stays in the body. Now, let's see. Good question. Slightly off primers. Uh, do you utilize PD-5 inhibitors for women with sexual dysfunction? Some studies show it can be efficacious. Um, and is there any use for these medications among trans population? Two great questions. So I will admittedly state, you know, I'm a woman in men's health, and that's kind of what my background shows. That's a woman that's a dude in a baseball cap. But um, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I know more about men's health than I do about my own. And um, so I, I don't know that I can um, quite comment on the use of PD-5 inhibitors in women um, in a real way. And then use in trans population is a really interesting question. 
Um, you know, those patients are on hormone therapy. They've oftentimes, by the time they see me, have been on hormone therapy to knock down their testosterone for many years. And not to say, you know, sexual function in some of those patients is actually really important. And others, they actually don't want any sexual function. So I would say most of the, pa most of the transgender patients that come to see me in clinic are coming in specifically for the discussion of gender-affirming bottom surgery, male to female, you know, zero or full-depth vaginoplasty. And so typically we're talking about removing the penis. And so I, I have not um, prescribed these medications in trans patients just because they're not coming to me specifically for that reason. Uh, let's see. And we are at noon, so I can address the other questions um, through Twitter. Oh my God, this was really fun. I so much appreciate your time and feel free to reach out to me through Twitter and UCSF. High five. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.